I want to welcome all those that are watching live video streaming from around our country and other parts of the world. I want to welcome those that are in our, our video chapel venue uh, today. Uh, it is so good to be in God's house and the worship and the communion this Memorial Weekend it just really is touching my heart in a very powerful way. And uh, our studies are in the book of Acts and it leads us to Acts chapter 7. Uh, and let me say this before we actually dive into the message. Uh, one of the things that pastors are notorious for is that we like to preach out of our favorite books in the Bible. We like to preach out of our favorite chapters in the Bible. And we like to preach out of our favorite verses in the Bible. Hence, there are some pastors that will never preach out of certain books. Some pastors, I heard one pastor say, never preach out of the Old Testament. It's way too negative. I almost fell out of my chair. I couldn't believe he said that, much less believe that. You know, all of God's Word is inspired of God, divinely and supernatural, and it's for our edification, exhortation, and comfort. It's for the building up of our faith. It's for reproof, rebuke, and correction, and training in righteousness. And so if you're new to Christianity or you're new to Trinity today, I'm sorry to break the news that we try to preach on everything in God's Word. And we are in the book of Acts, studying chapter by chapter, verse by verse. And we're going to be in a section of Scripture today that I'm going to end the message with. That You're going to be like, what? Are you kidding me? We're talking about that in church? Absolutely. Because God's Word talks about it. And if God deemed it important enough to be in the Bible, then we must show proper respect and esteem to teach the entirety of God's counsel. Amen? Can we thank God for that? All right. In chapter 6, or chapter 1 of, uh, of Acts, was the ascension of Christ. That's the main event that happened. In chapter 2 was the day of Pentecost, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. In Acts chapter 3, the main event was the miracle of a man laid at the gate called Beautiful. This healing brought about a great revival, but it also brought about uh, unwanted attention from the religious authorities. In chapter 4, persecution enters into the church, and the apostles are arrested. Chapter 5, uh, hypocrisy uh, shows up in the church. Ananias and Sapphira, God has to deal with it, so he kills them right there in the middle of worship service. That's Acts chapter 5. It's not in the Old Testament, by the way. It's in the New Testament. Chapter 6, there's division in the church. As the church begins to grow, growing pains, we talked about that. Uh, there's division in the church. It had to be addressed. It had to be handled. And then there's a shift that occurs in, in Acts chapter 6. God takes the spotlight off of the apostles, Peter primarily, James and John and the others, and he puts the spotlight on deacons, a guy in particular by the name of Stephen. And Stephen is brought before the religious leaders of his day and is being interrogated for his faith in Jesus, Messiah. And so in chapter 7, the longest recorded sermon in the book of Acts is found here in, in Acts chapter 7. Stephen is the one that delivers this message. And basically, it's a historical lesson. He gives a, 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 he gives a, a, a segment, he takes segments of the, of the illustrious history of the nation of Israel, the Hebrew people, and he applies that to what was happening in Jerusalem at that particular time with the coming of Messiah, the death of Jesus, and the resurrection 
of Jesus. And here's what you need to know. History is important. If you don't know where you've, you've come from, you don't know where you're going. And history is not just the study of past events in, in the affairs of human life. History is his story, meaning God's story. So I've entitled the message, this section of, of our study out of Acts 7, his story, because history is really the story of God. I love what C.S. Lewis said about history. He said, history is a story written by the finger of God. You see, in all the affairs of, his, of human history, man, there are boundaries and limits to the, the free moral agency of mankind. Man can only go so far. There is a limit to man's free will, uh, which, which then requires God's divine intervention. Remember the story in Genesis 11 of the, the building of the, ba- the, the Tower of Babel. Uh, the, the unbelieving world at that time, they came together, they had one mind, they had one language, and now God said nothing that they conceive or imagine will be withheld from them. And they were building this tower in rebellion against God. And they got to a certain point and they reached the boundary and the limits of man's free will and God supernaturally intervened and he confused the languages. Uh, of, and that's the, the Tower of Babel. He confused the languages and the project was halted. I believe that mankind today, based on the advancements of science and technology, were reaching the outer boundaries of man's free will, and God is required and is about to supernaturally intervene to halt the direction that we find ourselves moving in. So really, history is significant because God is the unseen hand controlling the affairs of what happens in history, even the history of your life. Even the story of your life up to this point in time. Uh, although man is, has free will and, and man can choose to disobey God, there are limits to that. And yet we know that God ultimately is at work even where your life is concerned at this particular moment in time. Now, history is important, and actually, you may not know this, but the Hebrew people are the ones that basically invented history. Uh, they're the ones that, that helped us to understand that all of life has a beginning and all of life has an ending. All of life has a beginning and all of creation has an ending. The pagans, the pagan people in the time of the, Hebrew, of the nation of Israel, the Hebrew people, they had this mystical view of, of, of the world. Uh, they, they believed in the circle of life. Everything lived, died to live again. Lived, died to live again. It was just the circle of life and that they, they believed in reincarnation, this silly concept that you come back in another form, uh, uh, to, uh, karma, uh, to pay penance for your, your previous life. And, and the Hebrew people interrupted that nonsense. And the Hebrew people actually saw history as meaningful, providential, hopeful, and linear. Linear. There was a series of chronological events leading up to a divine ending or a divine conclusion, which is important because it means your life has a beginning and has an ending, and it means that the choices and the decisions that you make are not random, but they are essential, and that there is a meaning to your life and a meaning to the choices that we make. The Bible says in Genesis 1, in the beginning. In the beginning what? God. God was already there. So there was a beginning to everything. And there's an ending to everything. Matter of fact, Jesus is the beginning and the end and everything in between. In Revelation chapter 1 and verse 8, it says this. I am the Alpha, the alpha and the Omega. That's the, the Greek alphabet. I am the A to Z. The beginning and the end, says the Lord. Who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. The Almighty. And then in verse 11, it says, the first and the last. So as Robert Morey said, God orders history for the good 
of the elect. I love that. God orders history for the good of the elect, which tells us this. Jesus stands at the center of all time, past, present, and future. And the Bible says he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And that's comforting. It's comforting to know that as our world spins out of control, that ultimately Christ is Lord and Christ is sovereign and our trust is in him. And Jesus, as he stands at the center of all creation itself and of all human history, matter of fact, it's through Christ that we're able to know the period of time that happened B.C., before Christ and the period of time that has happened A.D., after the death of our Lord. Jesus stands at the center of all history. So really, history is his story. You see, God, not kings, God, not presidents, God, not nations, makes history. I'm reading through Scripture, uh, and I'm in the book of Ezra, and you can read it for yourself. In the book of Ezra, uh, the children of Israel were, were, had completed their 70 years of captivity, and now God was going to bring them back as he promised to the Holy Land, to the land of promise, the land of, of Israel. And they were to rebuild the temple. Solomon's temple was destroyed by the Babylonians. And, and now they were going to rebuild Solomon's temple. The second temple was going to be rebuilt. God moved on the heart of a wicked heathen king by the name of Cyrus, because the heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord, to initiate this building project. For the laying of the foundation and the building of the temple, now because of some enemies of God and the Jewish people uh, thwarted and sabotaged that, that initial uh, rebuilding of the temple. But then another king came, King Darius, and God moved on his heart and he reignited uh, and reinitiated the project of building and finishing the temple, uh, the second temple of Solomon, and it occurred. And all that to say, no matter who may be against you, no matter what may be against you, God is sovereign. And God's ultimate purpose and plan for your life, for my life, for your family, my family, for the church of Jesus Christ in the earth today, God will make it happen if he has to move earth, heaven, and hell to get it done. God's will shall stand. And you can be confident in that. So Stephen's going to give a brief history lesson to these religious leaders, and he so infuriates them with this message. You know you're preaching good if at the end of your sermon they drag you outside of town and stone you. <laughs> I hope I never preach that good. <laughs> so here's how it begins. This is the sermon, the longest recorded sermon in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 7, verse 1. He gives them a history lesson, and he begins by talking about the greatest figure of all of the Old Testament, which happens to be Abraham. Here we go. Acts chapter 7, verse 1. Then the high priest asked Stephen, his name means crown, his name, his, his, his Greek name, he was a Greek, Jewish Greek, it means crown, how fitting, first martyr of the New Testament church. When, you, when, when martyrs get to heaven, there are crowns that we will receive when we get to heaven. The Bible talks about this. There's the martyr's crown that only those who were martyred for their faith will receive this crown. His name means crown. Are these accusations true? What were trumped up in the, in the previous chapter that uh, they, they lied about Stephen saying, tear down this temple and in three days I will rebuild it. This was Stephen's reply. He didn't answer the question. Uh, Brothers and fathers, listen to me. Our glorious God appeared to our ancestor Abraham. Where? In all places. Mesopotamia. Before he settled in Haran. 
God told him, leave your native land and your relatives and come into the land that I will show you. So Abraham left the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran until his father died. Then God brought him here to the land where you now live. But God gave him no inheritance here. Not even one square foot of land. God did promise, however, that eventually the whole land would belong to Abraham and his descendants, and even, even though he had no children yet. So what is Stephen saying here? It's quite scandalous what he is saying. He's saying that the Jewish leaders of his day had become way too comfortable in Jerusalem. The religious leaders and the religious people of Stephen's day, get this, they had begun to worship their region, their geographical location, along with the physical temple, which was now had been uh, rebuilt by Herod, okay? They had begun to worship their location and worship the temple more than God. Their faith had become so superficial and so shallow. They had stopped loving Jehovah, they had stopped loving God, and they started loving the place where they we're living. You know, some people worship their religion more than they worship God. There are some people that worship their race more than they worship their God. There are some people that worship their religion more than they worship the true and living God. The Jewish people at this time started to worship their race, their region, and their religion over God. Uh, they were more concerned about their rituals and their rules than they were about loving God and being devoted to Him and serving Him and keeping His holy commandments. And so Abraham was a rebuke to their shallowness of faith. Basically, here's what Stephen was saying. Abraham had no Jerusalem to live in, the holy city of God, which it is. Abraham had no temple to worship in. Thank God for a holy city. Thank God for a wonderful place of worship. Thank God for the holy written Torah of God. But when Abraham was following the Lord and living for God and serving God, he had no holy land. He had no temple. He had no Bible. The Bible hadn't even been written yet. Moses hadn't even come along. All he had was the oral translation of the Word of God from father to son to grandson to great-grandson, from father to son to grandson to great-grandson. Noah lived and had like five generations behind him. So Abraham was able to hear with his own ears the story of God and the story of God's grace. It was orally transmitted. And he had a strong enough faith in spite of the fact he had no holy land, in spite of the fact that he had no temple, in spite of the fact that he had no holy Torah to read from on a, on a regular basis, still he lived out his faith in a very real and practical and powerful way. And what had happened in the time of Stephen, the people of God had lost this spiritual orientation. They had stopped living by faith and started living by their fetishes. They were more concerned about their religious practices and they had become pretend, pretenders and their faith had become shallow and their faith had become superficial. You know, I found this to be true. The more someone relies on the relics and the rituals of their faith, the less they actually know God. Isn't it interesting that God really gave the church only two ordinances to follow? Communion, which is done regularly and consistently as often as you do what the Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 as a church we practice communion ongoing 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 
until we meet Jesus face to face. That's one of the New Testament ordinances. The second is water baptism, which is only done one time. After you are born again and you give your life to Christ, you're water baptized. Outside of that, we, we really have no other sacraments, if you want to call them that. Now, now that the Bible has been written and completed, it is a supernatural book, and you could say that reading of Scripture is a sacrament. But remember, while the New Testament was being written, it had not yet been compiled. So uh, Paul would write a letter, and then it would have to be, you know, by carrier, would be brought to the church at Ephesus, and then somebody would stand up and read from the scroll of the letter of Ephesians. But not everybody could have their own personal copy of that. And so once again, it was orally translated. But now we have, thank God, we have a wonderful place of worship as we do here at Trinity. Uh, We have a a centralized location as we do. We, We have the Holy Scriptures, and yet... Here's the beauty of Abraham. He's the father. He's our spiritual father. Our our spiritual pedigrees trace back to Abraham. Matter of fact, the three great monolithic religions of the world, Christianity, Judaism, and Islam, they all trace, and I mean great in the sense of how the influence, only Christianity is the only true faith that leads to God. You understand that. But of these three monolithic, monolithic religions, they all trace their lineage back to Abraham. That's what makes him the most influential man that has ever lived, Abraham. So it's not by coincidence that Stephen begins by talking about um, Abraham and his faith. And what kind of faith did Abraham have? Abraham didn't have a backwards faith. He had a forward faith. So many people have a backwards faith. Uh, What God used to do, what, what God did long ago and oh I remember the glory days and oh I remember you know when the revival of 1942 or whatever right and thank God thank God for the the history the rich heritage that maybe you were raised in in your particular denomination but we don't worship the past we cherish we value we respect we honor the past but we don't just have a backward faith how many know that we have a forward faith how many know our best days aren't behind us but our best days are before us we're not looking back to the days of the book of acts saying oh if i could have just lived back then you wouldn't have enjoyed it they didn't have iphones back then maybe it would be nice to go back to that time you wouldn't have enjoyed it because you wouldn't have understood the language there would have been a huge language barrier No, God's moving today. And here's the kind of faith that Abraham had. In Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 10, it says this about Abraham, that he was looking for that city, not Jerusalem. Thank God for Jerusalem. But he was looking for that city, which foundations, whose architect and builder is God. Abraham had a forward faith. You know the kind of faith Abraham had? Abraham was a gypsy. Uh, For lack of a better term, he was a sojourner. He was a traveler. God met him in all places, Mesopotamia. God was with him in all places, Haran. What was Stephen saying by this? That Abraham lived in the most heathen, backward, pagan, idolatrous places in the world, and yet God was with Abraham, and Abraham was true to God. Why? Because he had a forward-looking faith. I pray that every one of us today have a forward-looking faith. And if there is one verse of Scripture that defines the entirety of our father Abraham's life, yes, he is our spiritual father. If there's one verse that sums up the entirety of his life, 
It's this one verse that's found in the book of Romans, chapter 4 and verse 3. Let's read this out loud together. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. I want you to look at three powerful words in this verse. It says, Abraham believed God. Let's say those three words together. Can we do that? Abraham believed God. Say it again. Abraham believed God. One more time. Abraham believed God. The best thing anyone could ever say about you, whether it's today or tomorrow or a year from now or 10 years from now or 3,000 years from now if Christ tarries, the best thing anyone could ever say of you is that you believed God. The best thing anyone could ever say of Barry is that Barry believed God. Becky believed God. Wayne and Terry believed God. Abraham, oh, that is your name. You're in the Bible. <laughs> Abraham believed God. The best thing your kids could ever say about you is dad believed God. The best thing your daughters could ever say about you is dad believed God. The best thing they could ever say about you, ladies, is your children one day saying, mom believed God. The best thing your grandkids could ever say about you is granddad and grandma believed God. The best thing your great-grandchildren could ever say about you is great-granddad believed God. Great-grandma believed God. Oh, I'm telling you, church, the best thing that anybody could ever say about you is what was said about Abraham in this one verse. Say it with me. Abraham believed God in the midst of paganism, in the midst of idolatry, in the midst of heathenism, wife swapping, homosexuality, heterosexual adulterous sin, in spite of all the craziness that was going on, because nothing's really changed. History simply repeats itself. And all the craziness that was going on back in Abraham's day, they had a tent for boys to use the bathroom, a tent for girls to use the bathroom, and they probably had a third tent for people that didn't know what they were yet but in midst of all of that the Bible says that Abraham believed God say it with me Abraham believed God that's what I want people to be able to say about me Carl believed God do you know the thing about Abraham he wasn't without his mistakes he wasn't without his own trials and tribulations and shortcomings guy like Abraham had to learn, like all of us, sometimes through trial and error, what it means to be able to get to this place where Scripture says Abraham believed God. And you can read the whole account and the whole story of Abraham in the book of Genesis. And here's what Stephen was saying. When the temporal becomes more important than the eternal, we are in trouble. When we worship a building more than God, when we worship a tradition more than God, when we worship a denomination more than God, when we worship our religion more than God, when we worship a, re a geographical location more than God. You see, I've always, I've always believed for years that God lives in Texas and I always felt bad for those living in New Mexico where I'm from. 
<laughs> but, but I know God lives in New Mexico. God lives everywhere. God is everywhere and His Spirit is moving all around the world. Today, can we thank the Lord that He lives everywhere? He's not confined to a geographical location. Woo! Hallelujah. Praise God. And then He goes on to say, and here's how we're going to end the sermon. Can you believe this? No, you're not going to believe, but you're going to believe it. Look at verse 6 of Acts 7. God also told him and his, that his descendants would live in a foreign land where they would be oppressed as slaves for 400 years. But I will punish the nation that enslaves them, God said, and in the end they will come out and worship me here in this place, the Holy Land. And God also gave Abraham the covenant. Oh, of what? Circumcision. Oh, at that time. So when Abraham became the father of Isaac, he circumcised him on the eighth day. Interesting. And he goes on to say, and the, and, the, and the practice was continued. When Isaac became the father of Jacob, and when Jacob became the father of the 12 patriarchs of the Israelite nation, they all practice circumcision. Now what in the world is circumcision? Did you know that the Bible speaks of circumcision 85 times throughout Scripture? And here's basically what it is for those of you who have never heard of this. Here is it. Look at the book of Genesis. It says in chapter 17 and verse 11, you must circumcise the flesh of your foreskin. This is to all Hebrew men. And that will be the sign, everybody say sign, of the covenant between myself and you. Now, every covenant had a sign of that covenant. See, God's a covenant God. He's a, he speaks in covenant language. God made a covenant with Abraham. God made a covenant with Noah. God made a covenant with Moses. God made a covenant with these men, and their descendants were to honor and follow the sign or the symbol of that covenant. You see, when you get married, you have a sign of that covenant. It's called a wedding band. The wedding band is the sign of you're in covenant. Uh, there are different signs that mean different things. Uh, every year around Valentine's, the, the sign of love is what? A heart is a symbol of love. Uh, there is an international sign or symbol of victory. What is the international sign or symbol of victory? It's holding up two fingers like this, right? Uh, there's another sign that people use when you're driving in Albuquerque and they don't like the way you're driving, and it's with, with one of their hands. It's not a very good sign. For the Hebrew men, circumcision was a sign that they were in covenant with God, that they were different from all the other men that lived in the world at that time. So important was this sign of the covenant. Abraham performed it on his son Isaac. Isaac performed it on Jacob on the eighth day. Jacob on his 12 sons performed it on their, on their eighth day they were born. And on and on and on and on, time of Moses. You can read it for yourself. In Exodus chapter 4, Moses didn't circumcise his son. You read it, read it for yourself. So one day, Moses is walking, and God meets him, and God is going to kill him. God's going to kill one of his greatest servants that ever lived, Moses. Why? Because he violated the sign of the covenant. And you know, you know who saved Moses' life? Zipporah, his wife. Thank God for a good wife that knows how to stand between you and the wrath of God. Amen. <laughs> ha, 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 ha. 
You know what she did? She ran and she grabbed the knife, the flint knife, out of Moses' hand and she went to their son and cut away the foreskin of the flesh and then threw it at the feet of her husband. Say, you bloody husband of you, you bloody husband of mine. She was mad. I mean, the Bible's real. You can read it. I'm telling you, I am not making any of this up. I'm sure he was in a separate tent for the next few nights. <laughs> so important was this sign that when young David went to the battlefield to deliver, deliver cheese and bread to his brothers and see the progress of the war that was going on, he saw Goliath mocking God, mocking the nation of Israel, and mocking the army of God. And he said this, Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that would defy the armies of the living God. He's basically saying, who is this heathen idol worshiper who has not cut off the foreskin of his flesh? I will rid the world of this man today. Whew. That's how important it was. Why? Here's why. Why, 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 why? Now, under the New Testament, Paul said in Galatians 6, 15, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision matters, but a clean heart, a renewed heart. A changed life that's what matters so we're no longer under biblical mandate to practice this because we have a new sign of the covenant and if the word covenant means to cut or the shedding of blood it was Jesus who was cut and the blood that he shed and we commemorate it through communion elements as we did a moment ago that we acknowledge that we are in covenant relationship with God without the shedding of blood there can be no remission of sins you following me the word covenant means to cut there has to be shedding of blood so in the New Testament, we're no longer bound by this, men. But it still is a, a good, practical, biblical thing to do, okay? But here's the deal. Paul had Timothy circumcised so that Timothy, who was a Greek, would not be offensive to the Jews he was trying to preach the gospel to. But Titus wasn't uh, circumcised. There's a spiritual symbolism behind this. It's a sign of purity. Circumcision speaks of purity. Isaiah 52.1 tells us that. But we also read in the Old Testament that the children of Israel were uncircumcised in their lips. They were uncircumcised in their hearts, uh, their ears, and their hearts. So circumcision speaks of what? It speaks of spiritual purity. Listen, the sign of circumcision for the Hebrew men, it showed... Now listen to me carefully. I'm, I want to keep this PG-13. <laughs> It was to show that the organ of procreation was consecrated to God. In a world that has gone insane over the subject of sexuality, in a world that is so confused, isn't it interesting that way back when, God wanted to come into covenant with his men, Hebrew men. And the sign of that covenant was circumcision because it was the organ of procreation that was being consecrated to God, which meant this. Every time a Hebrew man dressed or bathed, he was reminded that he's different from all the other men of the world, that he walks in covenant with God, and he's different. And he is to celebrate his sexuality, but he is to honor his sexuality, and he is to honor God with his sexuality, and he's to dedicate himself to God and he is to dedicate his sexuality to one woman in a loving, committed, monogamous marriage relationship. 
And God's ultimate plan was for that man and that woman on their wedding night, a wedding is only consummated when the two shall become one flesh. You understand biology, only a man with a woman can become one flesh. That's it. That's the only kind of sex that God sanctions in Scripture. Now, this subject is so important in our world today that, of course, I couldn't get into it in detail in a service like this. We do have small children that, that attend, and they should be in kids' place, but that's, an, that's another sermon for another time. <laughs> but I have an additional 18-minute teaching. If you're under the age of 16, don't listen without your parents' approval. I have an 18-minute teaching that goes into deeper discovery on this very topic and why it was so important to God and why in marriage it becomes a sign of covenant. And so you can go online and you can later this day or this week, you can watch it. I have part one, part two called Sexual Sanity in a Confused World. Sexual Sanity in a Confused World. Now, this was so important to God because our body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. And we are to <clears throat> consecrate our bodies and dedicate our bodies to the living God and to his ultimate plan of embracing our human sexuality but consecrating our human sexuality for the glory of God, for the purpose of procreation, of, of godly seed coming into this world, <clears throat> and for the purpose of pleasure the bonding and intimacy that occurs between a man and a woman in the holy bonds of matrimony. And what is Stephen saying by this? Stephen is saying that Abraham was a man of faith and a man of consecration. And all these years later, where is the evidence of that kind of faith in your lives today? To the religious leaders, that is that Stephen was preaching this message to. What does it mean to us? Well, we're to live a life of real faith and we're to live a life of real consecration. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Who hasn't made a mistake, if not physically, at least mentally? And Jesus said, if you look at a woman to lust, you've already committed adultery with her. So basically every man in here has, in God's eyes, committed adultery I don't know what your past has been like I don't know how maybe your sexuality was damaged at an early age I don't know how it's been misused or abused I don't know how people have, or others may have, have misused you I don't know how you're <clears throat> may currently be misusing your own sexuality by being involved with prostitutes being involved in an adulterous affair having sex outside of marriage God created sex and it's a beautiful thing but it must be consecrated to him and until we follow God's commands and dictates related to it it will bring such heartache and heartbreak and devastation in our life and in our world and in our families because father knows best God knows what's best and what we learn from Abraham is that we're to live a life of faith Abraham believed God and we're to be circumcised men and women in our hearts, which means we are to live a life of consecration. I want to challenge you by the Spirit of God. If you have been abusing or misusing the gift of your sexuality that God blessed you with, 
that you would no longer live as the heathen do, as the Gentiles do, because of the darkening of their minds, because of their ignorance of God, but that you would recognize and realize that you walk in covenant with God, and the sign of our covenant today that we're in relationship with Him is the cutting of the flesh of Jesus, the blood that He shed on Calvary, and that we would begin today to be the men that God's called us to be. That you would begin today, ladies, to be the women that God has called you to be. And that we would dedicate ourselves, spirit, soul, and body. Be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good, acceptable, and perfect will of God. And here's what I know. There's power in the blood of Jesus and God's grace is so amazing where sin may have been abounding in your life or my life in the past or presently his grace does much more abound. no matter how far you've gone no matter how deep and far you have fallen God's loving arm can reach down pick you up pull you out of the muck and mire set your feet upon a rock to stay and though your sins are red as scarlet they shall be white as snow though they're red as crimson they shall be made white as wool what can wash away my sins nothing but the blood of Jesus and there's power in that blood to forgive there's power in that blood to cleanse there's power in that blood to restore whatever the enemy has stolen from you. You may not be able to get it back physically, but you can get it back spiritually. You can get it back morally. You can get it back mentally. For whom the sun sets free is free indeed. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were cleansed, you were sanctified. The Apostle Paul said as he was preaching to the Corinthian Christians who had a horrendous past of all types of sinful behavior and activity. But I want you to know there's power in the cross to change a life and to reset the course of your life into a brand new future, one that's filled with God's favor, God's grace, and God's blessing. Can we thank God for his amazing grace? We don't deserve it, but he gives it to us anyway because of his unconditional love for each and every one. Isn't it wonderful to know that we can walk in covenant relationship with God and the past is the past. But today is a new day, and your future in Jesus, I declare over you, is bright and beautiful. If you, like Abraham, will build your altars and pitch your tents and build your faith on not that which is temporary, but that which is eternal. Let's give the Lord one more hand of praise. Can we do that? Every head bowed, every eye closed. Father, we humbly come before you today, and we pray. That, Lord, with the words that were spoken by you in Holy Scripture about Abraham, that he believed God. He wasn't a perfect man. He made mistakes. But he believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. I thank you that we can believe, not work for, not earn, not merit, but simply by faith receive right standing with you. And I pray for everyone within the sound of my voice, no matter where they've been, what they've been involved in, and what they've been redoing, there's hope. There's hope at the foot of the cross. And I thank you for the power of the blood of Jesus to bring cleansing, to bring healing, to bring restoration and forgiveness and a whole new outlook on life only by the power of your Holy Spirit, Father. Heads bowed, eyes closed, say, Lord, Lord, what would you have me do with this message today? Help us, Lord, to consecrate our lives 
to consecrate our, our sexuality, knowing that it is a gift from you, God, that we are to honor you with our bodies and in our bodies. Now, with heads bowed and eyes closed, if you're here today and you don't know Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, you could know his love, grace, and forgiveness right here, right now. Just pray this prayer out loud with the rest of us. Say it with your own mouth, mean it from your own heart. Dear God in heaven, I know I'm a sinner in need of a Savior. There's only one Savior. His name is Jesus. I call upon you, Jesus. I ask you now, come into my heart, come into my life. Be my Lord, be my Savior. I turn from sin to the true and living God. I receive his love, his grace, and his forgiveness. Dear God in heaven, you're now my father, and I am your child. Fill me now with your Holy Spirit, and give me strength to live for you and serve you all the days of my life, beginning today for the rest of eternity. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Can we thank the Lord together for family?